0: All right. Uh, welcome. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you all to this uh, next edition of the seminar series: Social Movements and Popular Mobilisation in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, our ranks, I think, have been partly decimated by fool and a few other things, but it's quality, not quantity, that counts sometimes. So welcome. Uh, we have. We're very lucky to have here uh, Professor. Assistant Professor Marie Duboc, who has written her paper on the non contentious politics of labour protests in Egypt, which we have before us and we will have read. And uh, uh, she's an assistant professor in political science at the University of Tubingen. She's in the Department of Politics there. And she, her research is focused on social movements in the Middle East and North Africa, especially labour and uh, also some issues around gender within the labor movement too. And she's written a PhD out of UASHA um, uh, SS in France, and uh, which included extensive field work in Egypt in the, in the 2000s. And, um, and, since, and she's working on converting that into a book, which she has a number of, uh, of important publications. There's two. There's one in the 2011 edition of the Frederic Barrel and Joel Bainin book, Social Movements, Contestation, and Something Else in the Middle East, and it's called, um, it's the one about Egyptian leftist intellectuals' activism from the margins, uh, and it's about sort of demobilisation and and, and mobilisation in among those intellectuals in Egypt. And also, there's another article in the 2013. Uh, Bynan and Beryl volume on the Labour movement, a social movement on the margins of the neoliberal global order. And there's also an article in the Journal of Middle East Women's Studies called Where are the Men? Here are the Men and the Women Surveillance, Gender and Strikes in Egyptian Textile Factories. So, um, and she's held a number of visiting appointments, she's been in Oxford, she's been in the National University in Singapore, and, and probably a few other places. So it's a pleasure to welcome you, thank you for coming. Uh, we also have, uh, 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 lucky to have um, Jan Bodling to discuss uh, Marie Duboc's paper, because the order of events is that she, Marie only has 10 to 12 minutes to present. Uh, because the idea, of course, is that it's an engaged seminar where we try to, where we engage in a discussion and uh, and we try to, you know, push and, and probe uh, the uh, formulations in, in Mary's paper. But Jan is going to be discussing for sort of 10 to 12 minutes. He's a MRes PhD student in the Department of Government with a focus on con- uh, um, social movements and contentious politics. So... Welcome and uh, thank you for taking this on. So let's see. I think you are being advertised the forthcoming events at the Middle East Centre there. And so do take a look. That's always useful to know. I can also advertise the next event in this series, which is going to include a public lecture and a seminar. And it's Frédéric Vervelle of the University of Ottawa, who's actually just been mentioned as one of the editors of that volume. And it's the 19th and 20th of May. So, um, a little way away, but um, you know. So, uh, I think that's all I have to say. I should say who I am. I'm John Chalcraft. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Government, and I specialise on labour, social movements, and migration in the Middle East and North Africa since the 19th century. Is there anything else I'm supposed to say, Sonia? Oh, okay. yes. Oh, well, oh yeah. Uh, the, the, we are recording the event, so it will be a podcast. So, if you. Uh, have any fears or worries about that, please speak now or forever hold your peace. Um, okay. So so then okay, so let's turn over the floor to Marie Dubot for her sort of ten to fifteen minutes where she presents this paper. And let's welcome her.
1: Thank you, thank you, John, and thank you very much for the invitation. It's a great pleasure having the opportunity to discuss with all of you my my work, so thank you very much for having me here. I'm also very grateful to Jan for accepting to be the discussant, so thank you to you as well. Uh, So as John mentioned, uh, this paper is part of um, a research project I started uh, back in 2007-2008 as part of my PhD studies. And at the time, the starting point was the rise in labor protests in, in Egypt. So I'm continuing to look at these issues as labor protests are still an integral part of Egyptian politics uh, since 2011. So for any observer of, um, of social movements in, in Egypt uh, at the moment, um, one see that the context is highly repressive uh, for activists. Uh, for example, in November 2013, a law was issued, the law regulating the right to public gatherings, possessions, and peaceful protests that put uh, restrictions on public protests. And uh, as we've seen over the past few months, um, a number of activists have been um, arrested and condemned based on, on, on that basis. And also, more tragically, we've seen also um protesters being killed um, while uh, holding uh, peaceful demonstrations. So there's this um, strong crackdown on, on dissent uh, that has been taking place uh, recently. And uh, labor protests have continued to take place, as I said, um, since, uh, since the early 2000, and this has continued to be a, a key aspect of uh, Egyptian politics. Um, we've seen, for example, last uh, last year in January, February of 2014, a wave of labour protests asking for the implementation of the national minimum wage that had been uh, announced a few months earlier. And also earlier this year in 2015, there's been strikes in a in a number of uh, of factories. So the the enduring or sustained uh, wave of of labor protests in Egypt, given this this current repressive context, is is puzzling or or, um, um, we could say surprising. So I've I've been asking why do labor protests uh, continue to to take place in such a repressive environment when we see such a crackdown on uh, on, uh, any form of, uh, of protests. And I argue that it is part of a legacy um, that dates back from the Mubarak era, uh, and this is what I call non-contentious politics. Uh, what makes it possible for labor to continue to assert their demands uh, despite this repressive environment? Uh, so just to, to start with a quick background on labor protests under Mubarak uh, between 2004 and 2010, there were over 2 million uh, Egyptians protesting in the workplace. Uh, It has several characteristics. Uh, First, it was the largest social movement since World War II. Uh, It was sustained over time and continues to be. Also, it has involved a very large uh, or very wide range of social actors, ranging from medical doctors, tax collectors, university professors, factory workers and so on. And also it has, it was based um, on a local on the construction of a local scale of protests, uh, which meant that pr- uh, protest was a, was able to take place at this local level, but at the same time it limited its capacity to develop into a national movement and labor protests were fragmented um, centered on local grievances so what does social movement theory tell us and how can we understand these protests before and after the fall of Mubarak? Well, first of all, the understanding of uh, social movements in, um, in repressive contexts is, um, is uh, a bit limited because uh, there's the assumption that in authoritarian contexts, um, social movements can't really um, develop and that uh, authoritarian structures limit uh, popular forms of participation. Uh, the social movement literature argues that in a repressive environments, social movements are either repressed because of the lack of political opportunities or um, use radical tactics against political, uh, the political regime. Um, and this is what the contentious politics approach, which is the dominant framework for uh, studying social movements, has argued. And co- contentious politics is also a way to uh, characterize uh, social movements um, as the carrier of the conflict, because by definition, being contentious means um, making a claim that affects another party's uh, interests. So, Tower tells us that collective action becomes contentious when it is used by people, and I, I quote, by people who lack regular access to representative institutions, who act in the name of new or unaccepted claims and who behave in ways that fundamentally challenge others uh, or authorities. So that's one view of, uh, one understanding of the nature of of conflict um, for the contentious approach. Uh, If we look at studies that are focused on everyday resistance, um, social movement actors uh, operate, I mean they argue that social movement actors operate underground or more quietly to advance uh, their claim and that's uh, in the context of the Middle East uh, we have the work of Asif Bayat who talks about non-social movement to, um, to show that uh, the collective strategies are not uh, taking place. I've also looked at um, a concept that are um, more marginal I think in, in social movement theory which is uh, the notion of consensus movement which was based on uh, research in North America uh, in, the, in the 80s. But we also have uh, very interesting work on China. I think China uh, gives very insightful um, perspectives on, on the issue of authoritarian regimes and, and uh, social movements, uh, looking at uh, what has been called um, rightful resistance, So, which I think is interesting to move away from this binary between quiet movements versus conflict movements, and to see also that there's an accommodation with power structures. And also if we look at consensus movements as the way it was developed in the uh, context of, um, of the US and uh, social movements there, uh, we can also go beyond the authoritarian democratic uh, divides. Uh, and I think, we can, I think that's interesting to see that consensus movements have also been analyzed in, um, in uh, other contexts rather than just in repressive environments. Um, so I would say that rather than focus on the authoritarian democratic divide, we can look more at how conflict situations emerge and how they are managed. Um, so my, my argument would be that we need to reconsider the situation of social movements, neither as radical opponents, nor as co-opted or repressed actors, but as part of what I call non-contentious politics. So what do I mean here? Um, I define non-contentious politics as simultaneously facilitating the expression of grievances while shaping the modalities of claim-making cl- uh, claim in order to narrow their scope, constrain some forms of action, and exclude others, with the aim of reproducing a political or economic order. So it means that social order is not social conflict is not repressed. But the modalities of its expression are limited in such a way that any form of debate is undermined. And also it means that under non-contentious politics, uh, the the legitimacy of claims and disagreements is reduced to moral issues like uh, uh, are you using violence, uh, is it a nationalist movement and so on. So how does this take place in practice? So there are two points I would like to highlight here. The first one is uh, the vulnerabilities in, in, the, in the regime. <coughs> and here we have to uh, situate that in the political-economic context uh, and within, uh, with neoliberalism, which means that the demise of the corporatist system, um, the failure or the demise of the so-called social contract, um, the need to promote some form of social peace to attract investors and so on, but also the, um, fiscal, uh, the, crisis, the fiscal crisis of the Egyptian state. All, that, all these factors contributed to give Egyptian workers the leverage to successfully voice their grievances and to force the state to, um, to acknowledge their action rather than repress it. And there are several examples we could cite to to show that uh, process at work. I will just mention the tax collectors uh, who back in 2007 uh, successfully uh, got uh, over a 300% pay rise uh, and in 2009 forced uh, the government to recognize their independent trade union. But it hasn't been a linear process in which the state has just been backing down because of these vulnerabilities. And in the face of labour action, um, there's been a, a, a very uh, strong form of adaptation, and it became a mode of governance during the 2000s in response to these forms of um, of social contestation. So the second point, which is leada- which leads to how is it managed, how is what kind of adaptation is, is taking place, uh, it's what I could uh, discuss the exclusion of politics. So it means that labour action like and most social movements in Egypt have developed in ways that discursively excluded politics. Um, We often heard and still hear uh, workers saying, well, we have nothing to do with politics, we're just workers. So that's been the discourse. But this also meant that the construction of a public space of contestation has been based on such exclusion, that what made it possible for a public space of of contestation to exist. And again, this exclusion of politics must be linked to the political-economic context. Um, the shift towards uh, economic liberalisation in the 90s, it was accelerated in the 2000s, which meant that politics and economics became uh, defined as distinct sphere, uh, and the need to accommodate, you know, to develop free uh, markets and so on. And this is part of the reconceptualization of politics and economics under uh, neoliberalism. But it doesn't mean that the state has been retreating uh, in the face of uh, these economic changes or these policies, but more that a new form of state intervention has been um, shaping the modalities uh, of working class action. So under neoliberalism, the Mubarak regime didn't keep workers in check by silencing them, but more tolerated labor protests becomes a tool by default to restrict the scope of this, um, of this protest, to keep them fragmented and focused on bread and butter issues. So this is what I call non-contentious politics, uh, which impose an understanding of economics and politics to which uh, social movements have to conform, and also which insulates uh, labor struggles, l- struggles from the social world, basically by defining the economy as a separate sphere sphere, uh, within which contestation can take place. So if we look at this, uh, if we use this non-contentious politics uh, gaze to look at um, social movements, we can also see what was overthrown or not by the revolutionary uprising of 2011. Not simply the regime, not simply the president, but precisely this exclusion of politics. Um, and clearly, the protest of 2011 uh, overcame this framework, um, but it, didn't, it doesn't mean that uh, it didn't continue to have an impact on uh, labor protests after the fall of Mubarak. And actually, we see it currently uh, in the process of being reinvented, redeployed uh, through other um, means. So just to, to finish, I would say, uh, non-contentious for how long... Um, And I would say that the overthrow of Mubarak marks the return to a corporatist legacy, similar in some ways to the one that prevailed under Nasser. And the division, it means that the division of grievances along economic or political lines is no longer sufficient to tolerate social movements. And we see it with the attempt to repress protests. Um, So this is targeting street demonstrations but this is also taking place uh, with labour action. And it can be captured by discourses uh, claiming that um, Egyptians need to go back to work, that sectorial protests are no longer legitimate, but are actually harming uh, supposedly a national interests. And strikes have been repressed, activists intimidated. And this is also taking place in a revival of the nationalist discourse, which never disappeared, but it is much more prominent, especially in the context of the... War on Terror, used as a propaganda tool to suppress dissent. So labor protests have continued to use this non-contentious framework, uh, which is not surprising uh, considering the, the context, but they also remain the only forms of dissent that are left in such repressive environments. And that's why I think that if we focus our analysis on asking uh, if labor protests are pro- and anti-regime, if grievances are political or economic, we miss the point. Uh, of the power relations that underline this, uh, this protest. Um, the la- and, and we can see that the labor movement now, like under uh, Mubarak, continues to challenge norms about representation and participation even though it's taking place in a fragmented way given the lack of organisation support and the constraints. Uh, and we can see also some uh, attempts to dance this non-contentious framework for example, last year there was, I mentioned there was, the, there was this protest asking for uh, the implementation of the minimum wage which led to some form of uh, coordinated uh, strikes across factories. Um, demands are not just focused on uh, material um, issues but also challenging the management of the companies and so on. So. I look forward to receiving your comments on uh, this, uh, this point and this argument, and thanks again to Jan for accepting to, to discuss the paper. I look forward to okay. hearing about it. Well, thank
0: you. <clears throat> <clears throat> All
2: right. Um, yeah thanks uh, Marie for this very interesting presentation and the uh, and the paper uh, that was uh, definitely a, p- a pleasure to read there are a lot of things that um, uh, I found fascinating and that I find myself in agreement with and i 've got many more points I can cover i guess so i 'll try to stick to the most important ones i mean First of all, uh, the, the uh, I think it's absolutely necessary, and still uh, uh, not enough, not nearly enough work is being done on um, the study of social movements in authoritarian contexts uh, outside of uh, works that tend to confirm uh, standard uh, social movement theoretical frameworks, such as the, the uh, idea of um, uh, repression. This uh, Making it impossible for movements to arise, as, as you mentioned, and as we've seen, for instance, in um, Viktorovitz's uh, uh, edited volume. Um, so I think this is this is highly highly relevant uh, and and important. And this central idea of how is it possible that we see such a sustained movement? Um, and especially focusing on one which um, uh, unlike uh, Islamic movements have not really been studied un- studied under this perspective um, is 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 really really relevant um, uh, and for instance, just taking the uh, political opportunity structures as as one element which although you tend to not address it uh, uh, that much, and if I may sort of paraphrase in my own words, what I saw in this is basically an argument for a sector specificity of, of, of political opportunity structure so that for a labor movement, the situation may be very different than for other movements uh, and for the reasons that that, um, uh, that you've gone into and that I will also um, try and comment on a little bit, but I thought this was a highly interesting and intriguing idea. Um, um, I mean, uh, uh, what I still saw as a um, slightly more implicit research question in this, and which I think is is, is uh, highly relevant as well is um, so given we 've seen this uh, sustained mobilization in the labor sector in Egypt, how come it did not play a very central role in in the revolution? You kind of sidelined the question a little bit, but it still comes back um, obviously and, and, and I think this is probably one of the um, the elements that could be expanded on, um, uh, and I mean, you you've done in the past also together with uh, uh, Joel Bein um, and and focusing on the role of, um, of of thick networks and their demobilizing effect, or like rather the, the inability to to give rise to national movement. Um, probably the most intriguing aspect was a grievance authoritarianism. I'm saying I'm still grappling with it, um, mm-hmm. and, and this is probably also where. I mean, this idea that that um, uh, modes of resistance and modes of power influence each other mutually, I think, is very, very uh, holds a lot of potential. And um, uh, and the idea that in certain controlled sectors uh, uh, contention will be enabled in order to make it make it work, basically, for the reproduction of power, I think, is 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 really powerful. But I'm, I'm going to come back to this at the end. Um, what I, do, what I found a little bit more problematic is the rendering of all of this as non-contention. I think I, I, I'm stumbling on the word, uh, over the word none um, I, I in this. Um, I think it has a slight danger to reproduce this idea of um, contention needs to be state challenged. I mean, it's precisely what you try to overcome, mm. but by saying that, oh, this is a movement that's not challenging the state, and hence I label it non-contention, you tend to reproduce that dichotomy, precisely. Um... And, and in the same vein, uh, the idea that contention needs to lead to repression, basically, is also, in a certain sense, implicitly reproduced in in labelling non-contention. Yeah. Um, and and I think, in in part, um, the the distinction you draw between standard social movement studies and and new social movements, which sort of still play an underdeveloped role in the paper, and I think could be brought out a little bit more, that new so, new social movement studies is actually, in some sense, a more powerful framework. And I think why um, I think one aspect I would criticize here is you tend to frame it in the way that social movement studies, uh, in the classical version, had to be against the state. Um, whereas I think if we look at um, uh, Tilly's polity model, for instance, it's not necessarily it has to be against the state. Mm-hmm. There the are various possibilities of uh, uh, recruiting elite uh, 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 support, the various possibilities of making of the government itself being in in a coalition, and this is actually an aspect that comes comes out in in your in your work as well. That basically you're almost seeing a uh, 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 kind of um, well a kind of coalition between uh, between the labour movement and the government um, uh, to a certain extent here. Um, and at the same time, that, the, that new social movements are necessarily not against the state. I mean, I think this is, this is not true if you look at um, uh, works like Dieter uh, movement uh, uh, works on the environmental movement, which are clearly challenging the state. That just you know, And I think maybe what's more useful here is, is uh, Jasper's distinction of, of post-citizenship movements as the ones that are covered primarily by, by new social movement studies, because the distinction seems to be not, are you against the state or not? but more do you aim for rights and and sort of fundamental inclusion of new groups into the polity, or do you aim at policy issues, basically, such as environmental laws, Um, which seems to be precisely the case here because you aim at policy issues, right? You you ask the state to support your claims, um, uh, for instance, for minimum wages. So you try and actually incorporate the state into your own claim-making process. And I think that's a feature that's very... I mean, that's um that 's become really prominent in the study of new social movements why which is why I think the um, inspiration you draw from that could be could be made more prominent and um, I'll just skip over a couple of points here um. Oh, but if, if 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 one uses something like that as as a more of an explicit framework, then an interesting parallel could be drawn because the other big movement, obviously, uh, that exists continuously is the Muslim Brotherhood or other Islamist movements. So the question is: Is there an interesting comparative perspective here, um, where uh, because they do presi- in, in a certain sense they do uh, similar things and they have hence been analysed with? of more new social movement studies frameworks or ideas of, of counter hegemony they're also not directly trying to um, overthrow the state they also break with this idea that either they're repressed or they become extremely uh, uh, extreme and radicals and militant right they also aim at a reform of a different sector obviously in civil society providing services they are creating a pious community um, so that could be an interesting, I think, so, and what are, what are then the similarities, but what are, I mean, I guess, what are the differences also? And, and um, I think one interesting aspect is that, that uh, is, is the one that uh, Bainin points out in, in, in terms of differences in organizational leadership, uh, could be mm-hmm. one of the, the why, why they take different trajectories then. Um, um, Right, I think I'm going to skip over these things to not take too much time. Um, Right, maybe so just to to emphasize that um, uh, latest with the shift to dynamics of contention, I think um, it's it's perfectly possible to argue that this kind of contention uh, is in, in the, in, in the aspects that you try to foreground, namely challenging, uh, sort of uh, uh, changing certain norms and, um, redefining boundaries is precisely something that the the dynamics of contention framework is very much concerned about. So it's not necessarily opposed to that, I think. Um, but I guess that brings me back to the, to the, what I thought was the main strength, and that is the concept of, of grievance authoritarianism, um, and maybe just give a couple of thoughts on on this. I I still found it to be quite unclear and and didn't really know where you were going with it. Um, um, I think the idea that the way the labor movement worked under Mubarak uh, enabled, aided, helped the idea of establishing a division between the economic and political sphere is is is, is very strong and I think it is this framework could be a very good uh, perspective to grasp that and also what you bring in the that this actually means with uh, Beatrice Sibor, right, that this means uh, not a retreat of the state in a lot of ways but a new need for the state because the state has to be the entity that regulates and uh, and defines this relationship anew, basically. And I think there's an mm, there's an interesting link again here to to sort of a new social movements framework because mm, as soon as you want to let me try to rephrase that um, I mean the way uh, uh, Milucci and the and 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 some others writing in this vein had it is that what the new social movements did is precisely that they politicized things that were previously non-political. Right? I mean, the whole idea of taking something that is a, a culture, called politicizing it, and and creating an arena in which that can then be changed. Um, and I think there's a there's a similar dynamic going on here in in what in in your idea about about grievance authoritarianism because. That's I mean, the desire of the state is obviously one, and then what the movement does is precisely the other. It takes this thing and tries to politicize it, right? Um, and so maybe coming back to my point with the non-contentious, in order to close also, maybe maybe what's really happening, what was really happening, is 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 more. Not the, and I think that would make the grievance authoritarianism aspect stronger. What was happening was not. In, in existence of contention, it was the inexistence of politics, right? Mm-hmm. And so, in that in that framework, um, I think uh, the the element of politicization um, becomes much much stronger, and also I think might open a better perspective on to why it happens. Then that in the revolution, once it starts, the labor movement does become. That's all from my side. All right. right. Thank you.
0: Contentious <coughs> non-politics, perhaps.
2: No? So, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So,
0: yeah, Mary, yeah. you get to respond to that before we open up the discussion.
1: Thank you very much, Jan, for your insightful comments. Um, yeah, we've uh, taken on board your point about uh, not non-contentious uh, The term, you know, not being convinced that it could be Really to reproduce this dichotomy um, and uh, and I guess yeah that's an issue I've been um, uh, struggling with it uh, myself um, but I'm not sure about the new social movement aspect uh, because um, I mean I don't know if it's just because it's a labour movement but I mean the, there's a um, uh, there's a material and economic aspect that's really problematic I think to, to talk about new social movements at least the way it was, um, it was developed um, in, in Europe and North America. Uh, so that's why I'm very uh, worried of using this term. Um, of course you know, I, and I mentioned it you know that the issue is about you know, reclaiming politics, redefining these boundaries about uh, what is private, what is public, what is politics, what's not politics. But I wouldn't frame it as um, as part of new social movements as such, because precisely of this uh, of these limitations and and you know the fact that you know new, the premises of uh, new social movement theory, I mean at least the traditional uh, approach has been that uh, the lines of conflicts are no longer based on political economy but on rights and gender and so on. So so that's where I would. Strongly depart from that approach but maybe I'm not familiar with more recent work that maybe would have reintroduced that, uh, that political economy aspect um, yeah so grievance authoritarianism um, maybe could be a way to um, to go beyond this non-contentious or the, the problems you, you raised about uh, non-contentious uh, the term non-contentious um, and maybe reframe it as part of this, these two aspects, like the vulnerabilities, which I think is very important to look at the, uh, to f- and to see it as part of um, a political-economic context um, and also this exclusion of politics so, um, so in that sense the, um, and that's where the, the struggle is uh, about redefining and reclaiming that, uh, that space Mm. Yeah, I think that's
0: the main um comment perhaps us, main comment I have. For, the main I have for. Yeah, so we can return as well. Okay, thank you. So uh, the floor is over for discussion. You can stick your hand up and I'll I'll remember and if you just say who you are, it'd be so nice. Um
3: so yeah, okay, you I am um, from University of Cambridge? Um, I would like to ask more about, uh, well, the idea of uh, a return to the corporatist Mm -hmm. legacy and in connection to it the idea of the movement uh, being neither corrupted nor radical Mm -hmm. because I see it as the most radical thing out there. Um, The idea that it might not be radical makes me think of uh, um, writings by people like Marshall Pussusni, the idea of the moral economy Mm -hmm. um, asserting one's uh, rights because those those rights have been taken away from us. uh, Whereas more recent writings by people like Alexander Basumi, some things written by Bainian perhaps, uh, Uh, point to the fact that uh, the the very creation of trade unions, uh, uh, we speak of around 1,000 or so trade unions uh, operating at a very local level uh, in Egypt at the moment, uh, um, really expressed the desire to fill the void that was left by the state. And In this sense, I even see the labor movement uh, as proposing a different vision for the development uh, of Egypt. Uh, um, If this is the case, uh, how can we then say that uh, uh, we're back to corp- corporatism? Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like we are beyond co- corporatism. Mm-hmm. This is my view. Thank mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah uh, definitely. Um, I mean, I agree with you. It's uh, it's not corporatism back to usual uh, business as it was uh, under Nasser. No. Certainly not. Um, it's, uh, this re- would reflect more the, the state strategies, you know, trying to enforce... Uh, a corporatist view where dissent is not uh, tolerated, that um, um, that nationalism and national national interests are prevailing, but also, I mean, from that point of view, um, the means to enforce this corporatism uh, are no longer uh, they don't exist anymore because of the uh, political economic context. So, from that point of view, uh, definitely, that's a point to to clarify and to uh, to make clear that. Uh, it's not possible to go back to this form of corporatism anyway, and that's where repression is uh, also taking a, a very strong part. And uh, I don't know if I mentioned it in the in the paper, but uh, it's more about um, uh, focusing on more um, uh, what do I call it? Um, on constraints rather than incentives. You know, so it's a model of corporatism. Uh, because there's, uh, in corporatism, uh, in the literature, there's this balance between the constraints and the incentives, uh, which is supposed to be the basis of the social contract. So in that case, w- the, if there is a return to a corporatist model, it's where the, um, the repression uh, is stronger than the incentives, because simply there's no uh, financial means to do so. Well,
3: that's one particular view, but... Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But that was expressed already back uh, in yeah, the yeah. 80s, 90s. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. And in the... Um, I depart uh, strongly from uh, martial positioning uh, and from the politi- and moral economy approach. Um, I think the moral economy approach is problematic because it very much focuses on um, enforcing rights and also... Uh, drawing the lines in terms of a material political divide, not questioning these lines. So that's where I uh, strongly depart from it. So when I use the term corporatist, I don't mean that um, I support this view, but more that's been a a state strategy. uh, Discourse. Yeah, a discourse. Uh, So maybe that's something to to clarify.
0: But just one thing that, that I mean, uh, it was said that the movement was more radical than you made out.
1: Oh, yes, sorry, yeah, yeah, <coughs> yeah. Um, again, this issue of um, radical, um, I think, again, the, the what I'm interested in is to look at how some specific understanding and, and, and practices of politics are articulated. Um, not try to define, well, of course it's politic and of course it's radical, look at, you know, it's challenging the state structure, it's, tal- it's challenging the trade union. Um, I, I try not to embrace this, um, this labeling, but I'm more interested in like the la- the how this uh, labeling is actually taking place and how uh, these power relations are put in place to um, create this discourse of it's radical or not it's material or not it's political or not um, and I think I mean my view would be that um, the by redefining these boundaries and by asserting um, <coughs> or challenging specific norms or s- a specific understanding of politics which has been imposed uh, this is of course part of of uh, social change and you can uh, call it radical uh, but i'm i'm not a, I'm, i don't see it as the end point i'm more interested in the process and how this is um, taking place so i'm not l- looking at you know what is it achieving but more of the process of how these power structures are put in place and how they are handled uh, on the ground you know mm-hmm. rather than trying to speculate on its uh, political implications as such
4: Um, so I, I have a question about your dismissal, um, perhaps not dismissal, but because you were trying to find this sort of middle ground between the everyday forms of resistance and at the same time the explicit challenging of the state. Mm-hmm. So in terms of, um, when you used Asif Bayad, I was thinking, um, because I, I, I'm not very well versed in, a, in his work, but I'm thinking I know he makes a distinction between everyday forms of resistance and quiet encroachment and what you describe. Was quite encroachment however you um, you kind of fused both together and mm-hmm. I'm thinking uh, you, you emphasized the work uh, you said you said typically they take place quietly and therefore pass unnoticed I think the, the um, everyday forms of resistance would be would tap more into the attitudes and changing of social norms that would pass unnoticed by the state however not by the by the people. Um, but at the same time, quite encroachment I think the word encroachment is something that you you 're really disrupting the activity of this uh, the activity of the state when you go about uh, having informal housing, which are things that the state would have to deal with or the municipalities would have to deal with, so it really is kind of stepping on the state but not annoying it to the extent that you, you would face a, a, a certain level of repression uh, so I think this is I find this also as a middle ground between his everyday forms of resistance or explicitly going against the state. You are annoying the state. Mm-hmm. Um, you're trying to send a message, but the way you're sending it, I think it's more creative form of claim-making. Um, and in terms of forms of claim-making, um, I'm thinking in terms of the consensus movements, um, how is it that it is not only the... Um, um, the mode of that the mode of power of the state allows you to express in a certain way, or to think of how it is that you should express that you would um, voice economic concerns rather than voice them uh, within a political uh, cover. Um, I mean that even the um, the way that the, the way that workers perhaps would express their concerns and why they would use certain repertoires such as strikes, is particularly related to the kind of institutional of life that they live in, and the only way they know how to directly fight it. So you would make a strike because if you do the only... So the only leverage that you have over these forms of power, where the institution itself or the, the state being representative of that factory or the the workplace, is for you to boycott it, for you to harm it. So that mm-hmm. your form of power comes from mm-hmm. as well, from the, institu- from the form of... Institu- from the social structure as yeah. well. Um, so I'm thinking... May, they might express it in economic terms, but technically, I'm thinking these do have a political um, touch to it um, the, and I think they're the perhaps I don't, know, I don't know in the context of Egypt, but perhaps in another context, even if you were voicing economic concerns and talking about bread and butter, when you say bread and butter, you actually it's a, you know that it's a political concern. Mm-hmm. you're just voicing it in the only way you know how. Mm-hmm. The, the only thing that actually that where your power lies mm-hmm. is what you
1: use. Um, yeah. And thank you. Thank me. you. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, yes, on the issue of um, quiet encroachment, um, I would um, agree more with the issue of encroachment, as you said, but not really in with the issue of quietness, because I think what we've seen in the Middle East region over the past uh, decade and is the opposite of quietness. It's visibility. So it's not, people are not thinking, or at least in labour strikes and even also when we see um, uh, people in neighbourhoods protesting, uh, organising demonstrations because of the lack of public services or the shortage of water and so on. It's not an attempt to avoid the state, but really an attempt to confront the state and to say, well, we need uh, state intervention and that goes back to this issue of um, redefining the terms of the state society relationship and what role the state is uh, playing um, in that context so I think it's the opposite of quietness it's very much uh, um, a longing for visibility and for being heard and that's where I depart strongly from Asif Bias, uh concept <coughs> uh, from that point of view Um, Yeah, of course, economic concerns have a political impact. I totally agree. I mean, in a context where uh, uh, strikes are illegal, um, you know, like the very fact of organizing a strike has a political meaning, and I totally agree with that. Uh, But what, as I said, what I'm interested in is, you know, why is it that people frame it in this economic uh, concern, and you know, where does it come from? Why do they say, "Well, we don't have anything to do with politics"? Of course, you could say, like, you know, it's political, and I totally agree with that. But what I'm interested in is how do they, how come that they frame it this way, um, and where does this understanding of politics come from, and who gets to impose it and reproduce it? Eh? And and that's uh, so that's not a. I mean, basically, I'm not trying to marginalize or undermine the significance of uh, labor action, by saying well it's just economic. Bread and butter. Um, quite the opposite. I think that this um, non extraordinary event, if you compare it with, you know, a revolution as such, um, are have a very strong significance uh, politically. But I'm interested in why is it that it's framed that way, uh, and, and why does it their repertoires are affected in, in such a way.
0: I mean, if one of the key questions is where does this understanding of the political come from, aren't there a multitude of possible answers Mm -hmm. and a multitude of possible agents and and forms? I mean, uh, because it seems to me the way you frame it, if it's framed really in terms of the discursive production of different sites of autonomy, different categories of the social, the economic, the political, and your analytic framework wants to sort of begin to understand how those categories are produced and circulated. Um, uh, I mean, this, doesn't this, you run straight into the problem that's so familiar in discourse theory, which is, you know, the lack of agents, the lack of structures, the lack of interests, material or ideal, the lack of fracture within the social, the lack of dialectics, the lack of, you know, different possible interpretations of what it means to bring a demand over society and economy. I mean, one. I mean, what about if I threw this at you, that the if you look at the history of the Egyptian labour movement from the late 19th century to the present, one of the very common features of the the, the demands that have been made uh, uh, by a wide sectors when they go on strike are what one might characterise as kind of social economic sorts of demands about the, the sorts that you mentioned here, minimum wages. Um, unpaid bonuses uh, issues over uh, social and economic conditions in factories even issues like meritocracy corruption, nepotism uh, issues over peace rates issues over um, and and, and this is I mean you see this history all the way through Mm. and it's very powerful it's not a, you could argue that it's part of what drives the labour movement and then you have you have woftists who appear in the 1920s, who you know within a framework of liberal nationalism, organised sectors of the labour movement. Then there's independent unionists, and there are middle classes. And then in the 30s, you have some socialists and communists. And then and then there are these reshufflings. And then there have been various kind of vanguardist parties that have tried to get involved with the labour movement. But so what I'm alluding to is that on the one side, um, bread and butter demands that say we we are not political. I mean, there are many possible explanations for it. It could be the strength of, of a form of popular culture, or it could be the lack of organizational uh, uh, allies. We yeah. developed program, a political ideology that can actually mobilize the feeling of always being betrayed by whichever urban constituency wants to represent you. As in Bainin's yeah. book, Fikri Al-Fuli's Journey to Mahala Al-Kubra, he, he says... Um, yeah, we don't care. About, I mean, who are these Effendia who come and claim to be speaking in our interests? They're different to us. They're nothing to do with us. That's not what we're... And, and we feel, you know, we're not connected to them. And, and on and on to reportage on the current labour movement in Egypt where certain groups, certain newly born urban political parties sort of show up in factories and say, right, we're going to support our programme. And the workers say, uh, well, hang on, uh, wait a minute, we don't know who you are, what's your program? And then off they go. And so, sure, you know, they, in order, so the workers say, we don't do politics. I mean, but just there are many possibilities. Mm -hmm. I mean, because all the whole discourse about how politics is bad, politics is and the manipulation of elites. I mean, there are many possibilities. So... And 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 there are possibilities that have agents, that have structures, that have dialectics, but not just sort of a discursive production. Who knows where it comes from, Uh, but it always serves power somehow. I mean, that's one of my worries about if it really goes down the route of the discursive production of the distinction between the political and the economic. Because it's a very old distinction. It's not just the production of neoliberalism. I mean, it has a venerable tradition. I mean, it's very difficult to formulate sentences without that distinction.
1: <laughs> Thanks a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, I totally agree with you. And maybe m- my focus uh, more recently has been on um, on state strategies mm. uh, or discourse, you would say, mm. uh, because I looked very much uh, when I did my uh, doctoral research on this lack of. Um, association and um, connection with uh, political parties, political groups and um, so that's why recently I've been more concerned with um, focusing more on state strategies and relating to the uh, broader um, regime uh, strategies Um, but uh, yeah I totally agree with you that the lack of organization is a very uh, important uh, aspect and as such, that was the key focus of my, of my PhD. Yeah. Um, and, and, and interestingly, for, um, I think the role of journalists is actually prominent in uh, looking at this attempt to, to be a vanguard or to politicize uh, the labor movement, uh, because political parties, political groups are so discredited that mm. the only groups that can fill that void are journalists because um, journalists that have covered labor issues are activists, and that's why they decide to uh, follow this career path. And this also enabled them to have credibility towards uh, workers, and this also enabled them to uh, bypass the repression uh, and to have to be able to, participate in a sitting with the workers, and they just say that we are journalists, and you know that keeps them the credentials, or at least uh, the the opportunity to to be in the strike and and to uh, shape the slogans, and uh, and this has been very harmful. And there's been a lot of, um, uh, I mean, if we go back to the 6th of April 2008, the attempt to build a national strike based on labor demands and uh, trying to use a strike in one factory as uh, yeah. a potential for or having a, a national strike. That's the yes. best example of this l- lack of uh, of link or or the the discredit that political or politics uh, in the politician sense have. So yeah, I mean, I'm uh, really not, um, uh, so I, I, this is something I really take on board. Same thing with the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, that have refused to, uh use or support labor protests as uh, uh actively or be uh, you know they haven't been interested in uh in in, uh, in be actively involved in the uh, in labor movements for a number of reasons but also because they have enforces a uh, corporatist uh idea that uh, if workers want to have strike they can have them and the brotherhood who are, uh, in the labor where workers will would be part of it and same thing for medical doctors for university professors and so on but as an organization we don't support that um, so this this is also contributing to the lack of organization um, and the lack of leverage uh, so yeah I definitely agree with that and uh, but that's been the recent focus of, uh, of my work but uh, it shouldn't be the only um, lens through which to look at this issue
0: right
2: I would come back with um, yeah. um because maybe one way one way of, of of dealing with this and I maybe I didn't formulate this uh, very well uh, um, what I mean, certainly there's for one there's the point. I mean, you said you know, new social movements not really that interesting because uh, originating in this idea of uh, immaterial issues that are <laughs> at stake, uh, and, yeah. and 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 in, in, in the European and, and U.S. context. Now, h- how about if if in the framework that you're that you're positing of of, of, of re- authoritarianism, or in these regimes, uh, uh, in, in, in in maybe in in you know. Uh, repressive regimes in general, what we have come to call new social movements is actually the old social movement. Um, And and the idea about this would would go like this, roughly. Um, Because what the traditional social movement studies framework uh, uh, assumes is an arena of politics that has been pre-established, where rights of mobilization are guaranteed, basically, right? Um, and where it, there is a designated, um, I mean, there, first of all, there's the standard political process, but then there's also a designated space that can be used for contentious mobilization. If it crosses certain boundaries, it will, of course, uh, uh, be uh, uh, treated by the authorities in that this way, but, but still there is this space. And I think one of the strength of the, uh, of, of the new social movement framework was precisely to throw this overboard. And and say what we are interested in is how issues that were not, that don't have a place in in any sort of free-established political space get taken from everyday issues such as, and I think in this case it doesn't have to be immaterial at all and and, and, uh, uh, I I think for instance someone like uh, uh, working on AKP in Turkey um, uh, his idea and the way he uses the framework is definitely not Focus on the material issues. It can be very much the bread and butter issues, Um, but how sort of concerns of of, of everyday life and uh, cultural practices do become politicized, and how the state is precisely drawn into this process, Mm. Um, and and uh, why the interests, as you uh, frame it, of the state might be otherwise, um, in the engagement with with a movement with a mobilization. Um, new aspects become part of what's politically negotiable, basically. So I guess that was the original Mm. idea. Yeah,
1: and um, I think it's Great Calendar that has this interesting article saying the new social movements of the 19th century saying that Mm. um, you know, it's not really new.
0: What about another frame for this uh, not, um, this is interesting because it addresses social movements in repressive settings, especially because that uses a word which you don't like, mm-hmm. repressive, because yeah. you're challenging yeah. that economy. Yeah. Isn't it interesting just because, I mean, people, I mean, Labour protest and social movements theory don't, haven't mixed very much. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very important to study Labour protests in the context of theories of contentious politics and social movements, and it really hasn't been done that much. Mm. I mean, social movements theory often avoids the whole issue of labour because it just—it's such an enormous historiography, apart from anything else. Yeah. But it, and it's also so bound up in political economy. It's very difficult to write labour into social movements. Very. I think it's a, a real challenge. I think it's a super interesting and complex. Project. can i ask don't we need to preserve this idea i mean we keep saying politicization but if you ditch the idea of a contrast between the political and the economic you can't say politicization mm-hmm. and that's basic but really problematic mm-hmm. because politicization is as you quote shaila ben habib it's a fundamental gesture of attempts to make to make things political i mean it's absolutely fundamental to the transformation of Relations of power. Mm. If you don't make them political, how do you transform power? I mean, it's not at all obvious. And so, if you, with the discourse theorists, just say, if we understand the political and the economic and the distinctions between them, they're just discursive productions, then how can you have a theory of politicization?
3: by the fact that so far we haven't much mentioned the term neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. Is it possible to talk about uh, issues of contentious politics uh, um, without fitting um, the whole issue within a critical uh, framework, or that is a critical framework uh, understood as neoliberalism? as a cause of uh, these forms of contentious or non-contentious politics of labour in Egypt? You see neoliberalism playing a big role <laughs> in all of this? This is the question.
1: Yeah, I mean, I see this not just an economic uh, strategy or an economic policy, but it very much as part of the a, a political uh, dimension, and mode of governance that has strong implications for how um, how social movements have been managed. I guess in that respect, I have a sort of
5: nitty-gritty really question uh, about the paper. Um, did you have you found any sort of fault lines between public and private sectors in Egypt and
1: how they approach the labour? Yeah, I mean that's an interesting aspect uh, of the recent. I mean the labor protests over the past. 10-15 years that the private sector has played, has been more prominent in labour strikes. Before it used to be uh, mainly focused on uh, public sector uh, factories, mm-hmm. uh, whereas um, more recently uh, pri- the private sector has, uh, has been an integral part of, uh, of labour protests.
0: does this mean that you're revising your... Is this... Because the relationship between this and the, the book and, or the PhD, the informal networks and how they... Because that was your explanation, wasn't it, for how to explain something almost similar, which is that these are protests, they're sustained, they keep happening, but they don't necessarily take on national, political, transformative dimensions. Mm-hmm. And you explained it through this combination of this rooted local informalism with, uh, and then the failure to coordinate more largely so is it now that you, you're sort of supplementing that with a larger issue about especially how the state constantly defines what's being done as not political or, it, or is it that you're really changing that whole explanation
1: yeah no it's bringing these two perspectives um, and basically, I'm interested in the how the state has been managing and dealing with um, with these uh, protests, right. and how how and my work, uh, my field work was looking at how this is translating, you know, uh, at the local level. Basically, how does this affect uh, social movement strategies um, and these informal networks? that make it possible for mobilization to take place, but at the same time, hinder the possibility. So it's, it's uh, looking at the interplay between both. Maybe also as a way, as you said, to look at the multitude of factors that account for this, uh, right. for this situation. Um.
6: In knowing, uh, if you don't mind me asking this question, uh, you know what, what? You know when these strikes happen. um what sustains it for so long? Are there particular leaders that that lead these movements, or is it the circumstances that don't change, so you have to keep putting the pressure on? Them? <coughs> uh, you know what are these games called? Because you know these are very calculated gains and clearly the results are case by case. Mm-hmm. You can't generalize and say there's an infrastructure that's that's put in place to deal with these many set of problems. So do you know something about the you know the internal power alliances that that are involved in these mobilization?
1: I mean there's uh, from the cases I know that I worked on um I would say that um, there's an organizational issue in terms of uh, organizational capacity, uh, problem of divisions uh, within the so-called leadership, and um, um, so I, I don't think it's this as such that explains why it's this thing, because also it, it changes and there are conflicts uh, between workers in terms of uh, strategies, and uh, so it's not like there's a, a fixed hierarchy or, or leadership that is the explanation for why these uh, strikes have been so sustained. Um, um, there's a, a context, yes, that doesn't change. That uh, uh, grievances keep uh, popping up because of specific issues, you know, in terms of wages, in terms of bonuses, in terms of demands that are not met. Um, and I think what, uh, if we go back to the earlier phase in the mid-2000, you know, 2006, 2007, when it really started picking up, um, I think there were also like a political opportunity context at play that played uh, that, that influenced that, uh, or and influenced the capacity of uh, workers to uh, play a role in, in organizing themselves. It was the trade union elections uh, back in 2006 that gave an opportunity to workers to organize themselves, to organize elections. So, you know, we have candidates for a trade union election in a state-controlled uh, structure. Um, so to, to be able to run as, um, as candidate for the local trade union, uh, trade union committee, you need to get a network of supporters uh, within the factory uh, so that they are going to vote for you. And when great specific grievances happened because of the lack of bonuses were not paid or uh, some issues came up um, the candidates that had been uh, victim of fraud during the uh, elections were able to capitalize on the, their support they had uh, Developed during the, the electoral campaign, and yeah. then they emerged as leaders at that point. Um, and you could say, well, if they had not been victims of the fraud, they had been integrated into the uh, trade union structure, uh, what would have happened? Well, we don't know, but uh, I think it's interesting that, and that's the case of the tax collectors, Camelo uh, Boaita, who led the, the tax collectors movement. Has for a long time been elected member of the state-controlled tra- local committee, trade union committee, and in 2006, he was he uh, was not re-elected. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's you know a specific e- example of you know um, how have you know this opportunities of it threats you know influence the capacity of some. Um, workers to organise themselves and to capitalise on, on, on their electoral campaign to organise themselves uh, so that could be a, a way to to account for that in, in addition to the uh, more long term uh, economic <coughs> hmm.
0: So is it that their exclusion through fraud from above, their exclusion then drove them into some more in, more form uh, form of activism Is yeah, really I mean, because like they that?
1: felt like they i mean that's what they said they said well we realized that we couldn't change things from within, we were mm-hmm. excluded, so then we had to take other steps
6: mm-hmm.
1: to assert our uh, demands yeah. and our uh, yeah. needs so yeah so it's it's you know um not being incorporated, you know not being co-opted that led this exclusion led to um right. To more assertive um, strategies or changing the repertoire
0: and has Kamal Abu Aita now been re in, re-co-opted <laughs> <laughs> because he was yeah, the head yeah. of the independent trade unions yeah, and yeah. now he's what, sitting, he's minister of some he's state. no longer he resigned? he's no longer,
1: minister. It's I mean, no longer but yeah he has been strongly <laughs> reintegrated in the yeah. in the system <laughs> he's co-opted yeah, I mean the co-optation is uh, <laughs> really uh, quite significant
6: because yeah, he's become a public figure now, hasn't he? He turns up on television and... Well, yeah, he and became and the Ministry
1: of uh, yeah. Labour, I mean of Manpower. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, that's... Yeah.
2: I guess one question that kind of... Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, one 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 question that kind of follows and that we have touched on a little bit already is... Uh, at the end, you say that you think the non-contentious model sort of holds for uh, uh, the labor movement also after mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the revolution, yet at the same time, you also say that obviously the revolution radically redefined uh, the, the political space in Egypt. Um, so I guess I, I would just like to press you a little bit more then mm-hmm. hear more of your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, is, is in this new context, is this re- given that it emerged in a completely different one? Is this really where the, mov- the labor movement, where you still see it headed, and if so, why?
1: Mm. Yeah, I would say that. Um, I mean, as I, I mean, the in terms of the state strategies, the non-contentious politics is not so much uh, prevalent. It's more than what I think It's more repressive and trying to really cut any form of dissent. Um, However, the strikes have continued to take place in this, um, I think, in this non-contentious framework, um, and despite the att- and, and and this is challenging the dominant or at least the attempts to uh, to undermine any forms of protest. I mean, in 2011, uh, strikes were criminalized and so on. So this. It's really um, the only framework, I think, for labor protests to continue to take place. Um, but you could argue that this is being um, challenged to some extent, you know. Um, and I think this is important to pay attention to that, how this is also challenged in terms of, as I said, you know, like the strikes that took place last year to ask for the implementation of the minimum wage were more you know coordinated like they had a common uh, demands uh, that uh, was um, leading to to protests in different places. Um, so from that point of view, you could say that you know this is being challenged, and of course, you know the redefinition of uh, of uh, the political space has definitely influenced uh, labor protests. Despite the recursive backlash, so I think it's not uh, it's not set in terms of uh, the direction or you know what's uh, what's going on, but um, but I think yeah the non-contentious aspect is still very much an important part of the repertoire, but we can see some changes. So to which extent this is uh, going to take place, it's, it's difficult to predict. But I think also the repression will par- play an important part. Uh, that's where the strategy of going more to this binary of repression radicalization is, uh, is prevalent, uh, I think.
2: Because repression also on the Labour movement did increase significantly. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what will be interesting to see is to which extent and how it is going to affect Labour protests. Is it going to, to, uh, to go back to the <coughs> Categories, I'm saying, is going to lead de- to a demobilization or to a radicalization. I think this will also depend very much on the organizational capacity, and considering the way, uh, uh, I mean, how our political groups are being uh, uh, are facing challenges, this is difficult to to see this link happening at the moment. But uh, we can't know for sure what will happen.
4: I think it's more of a clarificatory mm-hmm. question. I think you answered it already. I'm just going to answer no, no problem. Um, At the beginning of the paper you had said that the latest protests that were by the textile company of 100,000 workers um, asking for the um, implementation of the minimum wage. However, you said that there were 2,846 enterprises mm-hmm. in the public business sector and the publicly yeah. owned utilities that were not part of those protests. So would you think that uh, the increase in the level of repression or what was the reason of why... I'm not sure if those enterprises had been part of the previous protests in 2006 and 2007. Um, so I'm just I'm asking why is it... Because you mentioned it, but you didn't explain why is it that these other enter- enterprises did not participate in the latest uh, protests. And another question, at the end of the paper, you uh, briefly mentioned that the, um, that the, re- the revolution that um, in 2011 mostly was led by the youth. Um, however, I think the labor movements were a huge part of the revolution yep, both, as well. Yeah, so yeah. It yeah. seems like you were putting one agent onto the revolution mm. when... Um, just to perhaps to say that, oh, by the way, they used this other technique, that's why they were mm. part of this one, but why is it that they joined this one, mm. and how does that affect their uh, forms of claim-making after the revolution, I suppose? I do mean, this relates to that question.
1: Well, it's not so much that it was led by youth. Uh, I would say more that the coal in itself didn't even come from factories. That's more the point I wanted to make that the call for demonstrations didn't come from factories it's not labour activists who said well on the 25th of January we have to go to the streets and this is is not surprising I mean uh, as I mentioned in April uh, 2008 there was uh, reluctance from labour and from labour activists and from uh, I mean most labour activists and from workers to organise a national strike based on their own uh, demands I mean, they didn't want uh, to have a, a national opposition movement coming from from their uh, grievances, uh, which doesn't mean that they didn't support the idea of you know uh, overthrowing the regime. But it's uh, they didn't want to be seen as the initiator of that uh, of that movement. So that's from that point of view, that's exactly what happened in, in 2011. But then they, uh, of course, were an integral part of of the entire mubarak uh, the demonstrations. Right. Mm. Question.
6: question. Mm-hmm. Um, I, given that you know the, these are workers that adopt this, this style of doing politics in order to make gains, I, I mean, I'm just wondering. Um, I mean, do you have any idea how they look at the, you know, at the protesters in 2011? And do they think that they were inexperienced, or I mean, do they have any views? It would they have supported this?
1: of uh, protest. I mean, uh, work is, uh, a lot of workers participated, uh, but I don't know, I mean, I can't make oh. a claim or uh, uh, statement on how they found, like, the great experience or inexperience, I would uh, mm-hmm. do. How mm-hmm. they saw so
6: that politics...
1: It's a nice question. And to go back to your first question, um, the... Um, what I said that the uh, implementation of the minimum wage didn't apply to a number of uh, companies, and, uh, and the oh, number okay. a number of them went on strike. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: But I not, I all yeah, yeah. not all of them.
1: Yeah, not all of them. Yeah, that's, I that's understand
6: you mean
0: Yeah. Okay. yeah. But the term to repression is interesting, though, isn't it? like, from the point of view of the state, how do we explain it? Because if we read Joe Biden, he said the state didn't repress the labor movement in the 2000s because it was worried about looking bad uh, for foreign investors Mm -hmm. in a neoliberal context. Mm. And so, okay, so the workers have a certain power of institutional disruption because of this, basically, neoliberal context. But now, if they turn to repression, what does that do Mm -hmm. to that kind of... Uh, Know, economically structural explanation. Because it seems to me you could have the exact opposite explanation mm-hmm. for when it comes to neoliberalism. If you say, well, it involves floating the currency, it involves bringing in sort of Khaliji capital to buy up real estate, it involves the increasing lack of competitiveness of local manufacturing industry, all of these things radically diminish the powers of institutional disruption that workers have. Mm. And which then raises the question: makes their protest more remarkable rather than mm-hmm. just an outcome. No. But if, but if the fact is, if the state has acted one way and now it's acting another way, then how do we reduce that to neoliberalism? And isn't there a, a variety of strategies that we, they might undertake? And, the, and why? How do we explain the change?
1: Yeah. So why repression is um, becoming a more apt- strategy of yeah. handling? well Mm. maybe it would be that um, that the sectoral demands uh, are no longer I mean basically that there's this strong need for economic recovery in the context of um, uh, you know the tourism and income you know uh, Mm -hmm. being uh, um, affected by political unrest and there's been this uh also this focus on uh the war on terror and that we have to fight terrorism and any form of dissent and and also this nationalist uh backlash you know for national unity and and so on so from that point of view that's um and also this um yeah. desire for normality uh that um that the state can capitalize on. Yeah. Um. yeah. Order. <coughs> All
5: right. Yeah. yeah, please do. I missed your talk, Marie. Really. I'm so sorry. I had that clash, but I came. Uh, so I'm really curious about this last point, and I don't know if you talked about it already in great detail, but the whole question of nationalism under Sisi and how he has managed to, um, or for a time anyway, sort of diffuse some of the major demands, the self-evident complete consensus demands of January 25th because of the war on terror, the threat to us all, etc. And that's what I thought was going to be your answer to explain why those workers didn't Participate, but I see that it's more complicated uh, in terms of the and so on. do you have evidence? Do we know what the workers, some of these workers, are saying about this question specifically, about how they feel about the war, this question of violence and the ceasefire dealing with it? Because we often hear, I know in talks like this about Kavelle White when he became minister, he got co opted, etc. But we never hear what happened since, you know, since he's been. As he's left uh, he or his constituents how do they all feel about the conduct of the government or do just not have that
1: information yet well I think um, if we just look also at the patterns of labour protests that have taken place since uh, the summer of 2013 there was definitely a big uh, decline in uh, labour action uh, after the military coup mm-hmm. so uh, there's a, sen- in a sense that with uh, definitely affecting uh, the way uh, grievances could be articulated uh, and in January and February March of last year uh, it seemed that again it was possible to for uh, workers because of the uh, because the minimum wage was not implemented to to uh, again uh, participate and organize themselves um, I don't know, I can't um, make statements about specifically how um, how workers are handling this issue. Uh, there's always been um, this, I would say, this way to moralise uh, labour action to say it's not violent uh, we want to protect the factory we want pro- to protect our workplace uh, we want to support um, uh, you know, the national economy and so on. So there's, there's always been a this rhetoric of um, of legitimizing in uh, in moral or nationalist ways uh, ways um, labor action. Um, I can't say. I mean, I can't make a statement on, on that specific point. But I would say that um, this could be a shift also in the in the way the um, uh, labor action is is being framed. Also to be uh, not specifically on economic versus political issues, but maybe also on um, this nationalist uh, rhetoric that uh, we want uh, a more—I mean, basically to to uh, to basically use the conflicts that have taken place since two thousand thirteen um, to to legitimise their actions. So that could be a shift in the in the way to uh, to frame it, certainly.
0: Okay, well, I think there are many more uh, questions and possibilities, but uh, anyone's welcome to uh, carry on the discussion in the over a cup of tea in the George pub after this. Um, but it's the first seminar on labour that I've been to in a while where the women outnumber the men. <laughs> <laughs> so that is another sign of you know, your achievement here, Marie. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, thank you very much for coming and it's a very thoughtful and provocative uh, intervention. So, and thank you very much to the audience for, for participating in the discussion and to the discussion and to the Middle East Centre and the Government Department for funding this seminar. series. <laughs> thank, thank, thank you
1: everyone for coming
6: and for your coming.